And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620, you're listed to the podcast at investinghope.com, Google Play, iTunes, Podbeam, wherever podcasts are found. You can find this show today. We have a lot to talk about. I've been, let's see, I was absent well, one week. Uh, we did some traveling and, and trying to always give this show priority and, and to get it uh, not only live over at Joy620, but to get it on uh, the podcast and was able to to have some meetings around the country over the last week, do some traveling with the family. I'm doing some more traveling this week as I speak at an event in Dunlap, Tennessee, uh, in, uh, you know, today. I'll be doing that this afternoon. And then, uh, Thursday, I fly out to Florida where I'll be speaking, uh, at an event in Jacksonville and then I come home Saturday. And then coming up April 20th, of course, is the banquet for Hope Resource Center in Knoxville, Tennessee. And we'd love to, to see you there. Uh, that's, it's going to be a great night as we celebrate what the Lord is doing through, uh, the work of uh, our pregnancy center and the work of pregnancy centers all over the country. Today, though, what I want to do is I want to talk about a couple things that have happened around our country when it comes to the issue of life and abortion as we continue to see states make moves uh, that would protect life, continue to see states make moves that would uh, remove uh, medications, so-called medications that are uh, designed to end life, and so one of those states is Wyoming. And we talk about this a number of times on this show. What happened on June 24th was Roe, the Dobbs decision came, Roe was overturned, and then it sends it back to the states. So for some folks, they're like, oh, it's over. You know, we, we live in a conservative state of Tennessee or, or conservative state, fill in the blank, and, and we're done. We don't need to do anything else. We, we've outlawed abortion and we can look to the future. But the reality is what that did was send it back to the states, and now we have a 50-state uh, offense. And so states like Wyoming, states like Tennessee, states like Alabama, Georgia, Florida. Florida even right now is a 15-week ban, and they're looking at a heartbeat bill. And so a lot of things are happening around the country. And the reason those things are happening around the country is because states are now looking to further define where the line is. And so you'll have states like Wyoming that we're about to talk about, or Florida, even with a 15-week ban, Florida's going, there's a lot of folks in Florida that are saying, we have the greatest governor in the country, we have a 15-week ban, let's go, we don't need to do anything else. But the reality is, 90-plus percent of all abortions in Florida occur before 15 weeks. So although we celebrate a 15-week ban, in reality, it doesn't move the needle that much. And in actually... Florida, you saw an abortion increase from 2021 to 2022. In Florida, you saw quite an increase from out-of-state abortions, which means now there are out-of-staters that are seeing Florida as an abortion destination. So although it's one of the most conservative states in the country, although it has one of the greatest governors in the country, abortion is still very prevalent in that state. Now, they are looking at a heartbeat bill, and I do believe that it will be passed, and I do believe the governor of Florida will sign that. So in the near future, you'll see a six-week ban on abortion there in the state of Florida, I believe. But this is why all these things matter. This is why we need to pay attention to what's happening around the country. Even here in the state of Tennessee, we have seen that, that we had a Human Life Protection Act, which was our trigger law. So Roe is overturned. 
Trigger law takes effect 30 to 35 days later, which is the Human Life Protection Act. And now we were concerned about this session because in our General Assembly, we were having some legislators seek to water that law down. Well, now Right to Life has come in. We got a good amendment on the bill that was put forward. And that amendment simply does some clarifying, but it doesn't take any teeth out of the, the actual law. So I believe at the end of this current session, we're going to have a nice, strong law in place that isn't watered down, that simply brings clarity and, and brings some definitions that matter, and, and then we can move forward. But we got to pay attention to these things. So what's happening in Wyoming? Well, this is over at the New York Times. Wyoming, last week, became the first state to explicitly ban the use of pills for abortion, adding momentum to a growing push by conservative states and anti-abortion groups to target medication abortion, the method now used in a majority of pregnancy terminations in the United States. Wyoming's new law comes as a preliminary ruling is expected soon by a Texas judge that could order the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to withdraw its approval of Mifepristone, the first pill in the two-drug medication abortion regimen. Such a ruling, if it stands, could upend how abortion is provided nationally, affecting states where abortion is legal as well as states with bans and restrictions. Legislation to ban or add restrictions on medication abortion has been introduced in several states this year, including a bill in Texas that would not only prohibit medication abortion, but would also require Internet service providers to take steps to block medication abortion websites so people in Texas could not view them. In these states, proposals to block or restrict abortion pills have typically been introduced along with other anti-abortion measures, a reflection of the range of obstacles to abortion these states have tried to erect since the Supreme Court overturned the national right to abortion last June. Notice all this language. Notice all the language. Anti-abortion groups, anti-abortion states, anti-abortion legislation. Now, now, is that correct language? I, I have no problem with that. I have no problem being called anti-abortion because guess what? I'm anti-abortion. The reality is there are states that are anti-abortion. But, but notice when they talk about abortion proponents, they don't call them pro-abortion. When, when they talk about states that are pushing the abortion agenda, they don't call them pro-abortion states. No, it's the national right to, to abortion that was overturned on June 24th. You see, it's, a, it's the golden calf. It has become a religion for many folks. It is an idol. It is uh, now a faith system that they need. They believe they need abortion. There are some that would even say abortion was my salvation. Abortion allowed me to get the career that I have. Abortion allowed me to fill in the blank. We've seen actresses say abortion allowed me to get this Oscar and to have success in Hollywood. Abortion allowed me to become the CEO that I wanted to be. Abortion allowed me to have the freedom that I wanted to have in my 20s. We even hear men say that abortion allowed me to go around and do whatever I wanted to do. All I had to do was pay for an abortion. You see, we should not be celebrating those things. But here we are. Let's go back to the, to the piece in the Times. Medication abortion is already outlawed in states that have near total bans, since those bans already prohibit all forms of, of abortion. 
But Wyoming became the first state to outlaw the use of pills for abortion separate from an overall ban. Governor Mark Gordon of Wyoming, a Republican, signed that state's medication abortion ban on the same day that he said he would allow another more sweeping measure banning abortion to become law without his signature. That law, which takes effect on, on uh, this past Sunday, would ban abortion under almost all circumstances, making it a felony to provide an abortion. The governor said this, I've acted without bias and after extensive prayer to allow these bills to become law. Mr. Gordon said in the letter that he withheld his signature from the broader abortion ban because he feared it would complicate matters in an ongoing legal battle over an early abortion ban passed by Wyoming legislators. The broader ban outlaws medication abortion as well, and the abortion pill measure called the Prohibiting Chemical Abortions Act would mostly have the effect of adding additional penalties for medication abortion providers. A previously enacted abortion ban in the state has so far been blocked by the courts after providers and others filed suit claiming that the law violated the Wyoming state constitution's guarantee of freedom in health care decisions. The newly enacted abortion ban is an attempt to circumvent the constitutional provision by declaring that abortion is not health care. Wyoming's abortion pill law would take effect on July 1st and would make it illegal to prescribe, dispense, distribute, sell, or use any drug for the purpose of procuring or performing an abortion. Doctors or anyone else found guilty of violating this law would be charged with a misdemeanor, punishable by up to six months in prison and a $9,000 fine. The law explicitly says that pregnant patients will be exempt from charges and penalties. Wyoming is only one clinic that has been providing abortions, Women's Health and Family Care Clinic in Jackson, which provides only medication abortion, not the surgical procedure. The impact of that legislation not only infringes on our constitutional rights, it actually causes harm, said Dr. Anthony, uh, OBGYN, at the clinic. Criminalizing evidence-based medicine is really what this boils down to, and that, in the end, honestly, will lead to maternal deaths and horrible outcomes for both mothers and babies. And the article goes on. And on. it's always interesting to me that when we, when we talk about over the last three years, what we've seen with medication and the, the desire to, to say certain medications can't work for certain things. And then you have this person come out and say, look, we, we're criminalizing folks for using medication. Mifepristone is not a simple medication. Even outside of abortion, in order to prescribe it, and, and some people prescribe it because uh, there's been a complication with pregnancy and, and the like, but the, it's not a simple medication. There are, there are hoops that doctors have to jump through to even have the ability to prescribe that drug. But, but the reality is, if we know, and we do know, because the data says it, if we know that the majority of abortions are happening with the abortion pill, right? So, so right now it's 56, 57 percent of all abortions between 50 and 60% of all abortions after, after the Dobbs case are, are now done by the pill. So medical abortions, chemical abortions. And we know, because we forecasted this, both pro-abortion folks and anti-abortion folks have forecasted this and said that we believe within the next five to ten years that 70 to 80% of all abortions will be done via pill. And also, if you have states that have done the right thing, 
And you have states that have said, now in the United States of America, it is up to the states to legislate on the issue of abortion. Then don't get mad when a state says you cannot use those pills in our state. You cannot traffic those pills through the mail. You cannot do telehealth and get those pills from another state or another country. Those pills being used or prescribed within our state will be outlawed. I have no problem with the state doing that. And and although I don't like the laws on the books in the state of California, the way our current system is, is set up, the state of California can say, and they have said, you can come here and get an abortion all the way through nine months. You can do a chemical abortion or a surgical abortion. That's what happens when states operate with autonomy. So you're going to have states like California and New York that go all in. And you're going to have states like Tennessee, Texas, Wyoming, and others that go all in the other way to protect life. So people can get bent out of shape. They can get frustrated at the the old backwoods conservative states. But, But I've said this for months. That what was going to happen after June 24th was legislators, governors, advocates from different parts of the country were going to start getting creative. We saw this even pre-Dobbs with the state of Texas. They got creative and had an outright abortion ban in the state of Texas that held up in the courts. And the Dobbs case was designed in such a way that they knew it would at least get to the Supreme Court and then a decision would have to be made. That's what happens when, a, when legislators get creative. And so we're going to see article after article. We're going to talk about it on this show uh, often. But what Wyoming is doing is covering their bases. Hey, we have an abortion ban, but also we just want to make sure and be clear that you can't get those pills in in our state either. Very similar to how we had the Human Life Protection Act in Tennessee. And some of us said, hey, we need some more clarity, some more definitions to be lined out. So we're going to provide those clarifications and those definitions without weakening the law. This is the next step in what we're doing. We'll talk more when we come back. As we continue the conversation, we're going to look at what's happening around the country, as we do often on this show, because I think it's important that we talk about what we're going to do moving forward. So in a, in a post-Row America, what does that look like? What does a pro-life agenda look like? What does a pro-life legislative agenda look like? What does a pro-life church look like? What does a pro-life advocate look like? These are things that, that are going to probably look different in post-Roe, especially from a political front because we're in a new landscape when it comes to politics. We, we have more freedom when it comes to the, the legislation that can be passed and be signed by a governor and not get caught up in the courts because Roe no longer hangs over our head. 
And we talked about this on the show uh, over the last couple months as we've seen governors across our country, whether it be Governor DeSantis in Florida, Governor Lee in Tennessee, uh, Governor Abbott in Texas, as we're starting to see a robust pro-life agenda. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is, is not simply saying we're going to stop abortion. We want to do that. We want to pass laws that would stop that. We want to create environments that would, that would stop that and, and certainly stop the need for that. But also what we're seeing with these governors is they're putting their money where their mouth is. So they're, they're saying things like we're going to, uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida, for instance, is saying you won't have to pay taxes, sales tax on diapers, on cribs, on, on baby items. To save money, to save money for families. Governor Lee in Tennessee has said we're going to allocate funds to, to support and help pregnancy centers. We're also going to uh, do our best to provide more maternity leave. We're also going to provide diapers for those that are on 10 care for the first two years of the baby's life. So we've seen these things occur and, and what is happening is other governors around the country are starting to say, hey, we need to do that. Other legislators across the country are saying, we need to do that in our state. So it's a robust life ethic, a robust uh, agenda when it comes to celebrating life. And we see that now in Mississippi. Uh, over at Life News, there, there's a piece that says, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves issued a powerful statement about protecting mothers and babies Thursday when he signed legislation expanding postpartum care for new mothers through Medicaid. Today in Mississippi, we have turned our attention to furthering our new pro-life agenda and delivering the support moms and babies need, Reeves said in a statement. If there is one thing we should all agree on, it's that we must do everything in our power to lower barriers for expectant moms to bring new babies into the world and to choose life. Now, the reality is this should be bipartisan. Everybody should be celebrating this. Now, uh, I have a hunch that there'll be some folks that won't celebrate this because the last thing they want to do is, is have moms be supported to have their baby. They'd much rather them not have their baby, but I digress. The pro-life legislation, Senate Bill 2212, passed uh, the legislature by a strong majority uh, this winter. It extends Medicaid coverage from two months to one year for new mothers. Last year, Mississippi led the way overturning Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs case. Now, the state protects unborn babies by banning abortions, and approximately 5,000 more children are expected to be born this year as a result. However, the state also has a high poverty rate and low access to maternal and infant health care, and pro-life advocates have made those needs a big focus of their work post-Roe. Reeves said the Dobbs decision was the single greatest conservative victory in a generation and celebrated the fact that that millions of babies will be saved in the years to come. However, he also acknowledged that pro-lifers' work is far from over and pregnant and parenting mothers need better support. When Mississippi started the fight to overturn Roe, pro-abortion advocates never gave us a chance at succeeding. Now they're counting us out when it comes to delivering the support moms need to raise healthy babies. Mississippi will once again prove the pro-abortion advocates wrong, but only if we don't quit our pro-life fight now that Roe has been struck down. Although Reeves said he opposes expanding Medicaid in other cases, he believes providing the additional health care to new mothers and their babies is the right thing to do to help restore a culture of life in America. This is one more thing that we can do to tip the scale in favor of life, and that has to be our priority, he said. 
Pro-life advocates all across the country are expanding support for pregnant parenting families, both through legislative and community-based initiatives. Many are working to expand Medicaid for new mothers, create tax credits for unborn babies, and ensure workplace accommodations for parents. Others are opening and expanding pregnancy resource centers, maternity homes, and other community-based charities that walk alongside struggling families locally, providing material support, information, counseling, encouragement, and more. In one powerful example of the pro-life movement's dedication to serving mothers in need last summer, actress Patricia Heaton, pro-life leader, Lila Rose, and others helped raise $50,000 in 24 hours for a young Texas mother and her twin girls after she told the New York Times how the state abortion ban prevented her from aborting her babies. See, that's what being pro-life is about. When, when somebody says they're struggling, when somebody says they're dealing with trauma, the last thing you want to do is compound that trauma and encourage them to have an abortion. When somebody says, I don't have the funds or I don't have the support, the answer isn't, well, get rid of your child. Right? Hey, I'm in, a, I'm in a tough spot. I'm pregnant. What do you think I should do? The answer is never. Well, you should abort your child and then you won't be in a tough spot. No, because guess what? You'll still be in a tough spot and now you have the ramifications of that decision forever. So, so the answer from the, the pro-abortion proponents is we're not going to help you get out of that tough spot. We're just going to compound your tough scenario and your tough situation by encouraging you to have an abortion. So you're still going to be in a tough spot. And also, the baby you are carrying is no longer with us. And, you know, good luck with that. Now, that sounds callous because it is. It is. But that is the, the message that they have for them. Oh, you're struggling financially? Ah, the answer to that is aborting your child. Now, now you'll still be struggling financially, and now you just got to carry the weight of the decision you just made forever. But, you know, at least you don't have a baby, right? That's their argument. And, and we're just supposed to sit back and go, well, yeah, that's a good argument. No, the... Compounding trauma on top of trauma is not the answer. It doesn't mean things are going to be easy. Being a mom isn't easy. Being a dad isn't easy. Picking up a second job isn't easy. But there's countless families that have gone through tough spots, chose life for their child, and came out on the other side. Now, granted, there are countless families that have been in tough spots, chose life for their child, and still made some poor choices and decisions along the way. It's not a utopia. It's not all rosy. I, I know that. But, but our default answer in these difficult times and difficult circumstances should never be, we'll get rid of the... Get rid of the baby. If a friend of yours had a newborn 
and they said they were in a tough spot, you would never look at that friend and say, you know what you need to do is just get rid of the baby. You would never say that, ever. But if that baby, that newborn, is not being held in the arms of their mom, but being held in the womb of that mom, we have people tell that mom all the time, you need to get rid of your baby. The only difference between the baby in the womb and the baby being held in the arms of the mom is proximity and size. Same blood type, same DNA, same eyes, same organs, same hair. So the answer isn't, hey, get rid of your baby and all your problems will go away. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We'll talk more when we come back. As we continue on, I now want to shift a bit. I've been doing a lot of thinking lately. And I've talked about it briefly in the past. But I've been doing a lot of wrestling and thinking through my position on the issue of life. And in doing so, the Lord has really convicted me and brought some clarity to some of these thoughts. And, and so I put some of those thoughts down on paper because I wanted to, that, that's how I process. And so I have these thoughts, I either get on here and I rant about it for 40 minutes or I, I get on my computer and I just start writing. And, and so that's what I did recently because when we talk about the issue of abortion, we talk about debating, oftentimes we are told, uh, hey, you know, the Bible isn't an authority, leave that alone. Uh, and, and as I've been wrestling with this, I wanted to put some thoughts down on paper, and here's, here's where I landed. Uh, I've discussed and debated the issue of abortion for decades. My writing on this topic goes back over 20 years with my first paper in college. I've argued for and stood for the cause of life for as long as I can remember. This practice has proven to be successful, but this practice has also illustrated to me the importance of and the need for a biblical framework and model as I continue to have conversations with people from all over the country that are for, against, or indifferent to the issue of abortion. Many of these conversations often start with a premise that argues the Bible is not an authority on the topic at hand. I'm often told that the Bible is a sorry excuse for a source when discussing the work of pregnancy centers or the issue of abortion. I must admit, I've often taken this criticism and adapted my position to fit the views of the culture. Sure, this might be good practice as we construct our overall position, but this practice must not become our default as we debate and have conversations surrounding life and abortion. I believe for quite some time that since I could argue my viewpoint from scientific and political perspectives, opponents would see me as more credible or sensible when discussing the issue of abortion. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think life-affirming advocates should be able to articulate their position fully, no matter the lens at which we view it. However, I think we make a mistake when we take our cues from a secular culture that seeks to propagate abortion in every realm of our society. A quick search online would prove that as some seek to divorce us from our faith and our God, they are creating their own faith and God in the golden calf that is abortion. Again, I discuss this issue of abortion daily in my work, of course, here on this show and often around the country as I speak on the topic. I do this in a variety of ways as I articulate my position when it comes to policy, community, or family. However, these varieties always find their root in the Word of God. It should surprise none of us that 
The enemy would ask or require us to divorce ourselves from our faith in the greatest tool we have in our tool belt. Their argument, in essence, is this. Well, we can debate this issue, but you must leave your greatest resource at the house. I've heard this my entire adult life, and if I'm honest, I often take the bait. I've so much confidence in my ability that I wrongly believe I could make a difference on my own apart from God and his word. Not too long ago, I was having a conversation with someone about this very topic. We were discussing our past observations and how we navigate these opportunities to advocate for life. As we were talking, the Lord brought to mind a question concerning David. What if David would have left God back at the camp when he answered the call to face Goliath? Goliath, in that moment, was mocking David and his God. Goliath, sure, was not afraid of David or David's God, but he was seeking to draw him out of the camp. What if David, in that moment, would have taken the cues from the lost culture? What if David's confidence and his skills moved him to fight in his own strength? We will never know because David stepped out in faith in full confidence with God on his side. God's word illustrates this truth repeatedly. When God's people find themselves in difficult circumstances, the word of God never returns void. When Jesus was tempted, he answered, it is written. When Daniel was faced with the den of lions, he didn't leave God outside. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were faced with death, they did not run from the truth. Instead, they boldly shared their faith in the God of the universe. I could continue on, but I think the point is clear. We are living in uncertain times, but we serve a certain God. I'm blessed to have opportunity to speak truth and cultivate conversations that would properly define the importance of our work and the work of life advocates everywhere. As these opportunities present themselves, might I suggest or challenge you? Always try to cut a path back to the greatest resource we have at our disposal, the Word of God. Charles Spurgeon often said it best with this summary. He said, I take my text and make a beeline to the cross. This practice will never lead us astray. Our goal should never be as simple as winning a debate. I lived that life for quite some time, and yes, winning debates can oftentimes make us feel good. But I can promise you that winning people for eternity feels a great deal better. Do not be hesitant to point people to truth. Our world is hungry for authenticity and a people that would be willing to provide that truth to them. I pray we do not neglect this opportunity as we seek to walk in our faith at home, in our workplace, and in our community with boldness and confidence. You see, oftentimes in culture, Christians are asked to be the culture. We are asked to take our cues from the culture. We are asked to put, place our hope in the things that the culture places their hope in. So, so what happens is we then place our hope in courts. We then place our hope in legislators. We then place our hope in the Oval Office. We then place our hope in men, fallen men. We place our hope in fallen women. We place our hope in, in, in our home or, or in our state or, or in our context, in our career. And that's a mistake. We are told by a lost and broken society that we should leave our God at the camp. We are told by a broken and lost society that we should divorce ourselves from our faith when we're having these conversations. We are told to leave our faith at the, at the door of the voting booth. You hear it often when people say, look, personally I believe this, but I'm not going to let my faith dictate what others may believe, or I'm not going to let my faith dictate my vote. 
We say things like put on the full armor of God when Christians in reality should never be taking it off. It shouldn't be, hey, I'm going to place it over here in the closet and then when I need it, I'll grab it. The point of that text is we as believers, that should be who we are. It should always be on. And so although a culture is going to look at me and go, well, if, if you find the genesis, the origin of your stance on life to be founded in the word of God, I don't consider that an authority. Well, as a believer, I don't, I don't then go, well, okay, well, I don't care about your eternity, so I'm going to place my faith, the word of God, and everything that God has for me and for you and for a lost culture. I'm just going to place it in the closet. And then we can debate this on the political side of it, or we can debate this on the scientific merits or, or whatever. The, the reality is, as a pro-lifer, you should know all of those things, certainly. You should be able to articulate your position when it comes to science, when it comes to politics. But, but if you are a believer listening to this, We, we have a greater authority. We have one that we will answer to. And it's not the person that sits in the chair of the Oval Office. It's not nine judges in black robes. It's not your governor, no matter how great he or she may be. It's not your favorite legislator. It's not your favorite candidate. You, you see... When, when we think through our position, I'm, I am unable to divorce myself from my position on the issue of life apart from what God says. Now, I know that makes some people uncomfortable. It certainly makes lost people uncomfortable. But again, are we seeking to win a debate or... Are we seeking to, to point people to a truth? Are we seeking to win a debate? Or are we seeking to see that, that folks' eternities would be secure? That's the question I've been wrestling with because for much of my adult life, it has been, I just want to beat you in a debate. I just want you walking, around, walking away going, man, that... That dude knows it better than I do. I couldn't argue with him. But the reality is, I want a lost culture to know that they were made in the image of God. That their, their value is not based in their, their worth to a, a lost culture. Their value is not based in their worth to an employer. That their identity is not wrapped up in that abusive relationship. Their identity is not wrapped up in that addiction. Their identity is not wrapped up in the struggle. No, they were made in the image of God. They have value, intrinsic worth. And it is that belief that they have value, that every human bears the image of God, that requires me as a gospel-believing Christian. It requires me. It compels me. To stand boldly for life. It compels me to stand against abortion. Because the very fact that you bear the image of God, 
that the baby in the womb bears the image of God, that the, that the father bears the image of God, that every human that's ever walked the planet bears the image of God as a Christian, as a believer. I can't divorce myself from that truth. Although the culture constantly asks us to. And, and for a long time, I'll be honest, I would divorce myself from that truth to try to find some type of credibility or, or that, that, that detractors would see me as sensible. If you're, if you're seeking to simply win a debate, then do all that. But if you're wanting to really make a difference and be authentic, then don't simply get up in the morning and put on the armor of God. Leave that armor of God on all the time. When we have these conversations, let it ooze from the Word of God. Everything we believe has that biblical framework. And we point people to truth. Because they bear the image of God. That should matter to us. We'll be back. So as we finish up, look, that, that last segment, I covered briefly on the last episode, but, but I wanted to go in greater detail because it's something that I've been wrestling with for, for a while now. Uh, and sometimes I, I, I come on the airwaves and I, I try to my best to articulate something and, and it's something that, that just pops in my mind and I'm trying to walk through it uh, you know, in the moment. And so I wanted to give you a, a, a better understanding and that's why I wanted to put con- thoughts on paper and really uh, go through that. But, but I think some of us Christians need to hear this, that, that we're... There are folks in our lives, there, there are people trying to uh, squash our faith. Now, sometimes that's us. We, we are squashing our own faith. We, you know, we live a, a very uh, surface-level Christianity. We don't want to have tough conversations. You know, we, and, and look, I'm guilty of that. I get on an airplane, I put my AirPods in, and I hope nobody talks to me. But the last two flights I've taken... Before I could put my AirPods in, the people I was sitting next to wanted to say something. And we had godly conversations in those moments. Some of us are nervous to do that because what if this goes south or what if they don't like me or what if they get angry or or what if they're a non-believer? You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be hateful. It's just an opportunity to say, you know what, the Lord has been so good. So when you, when you run into somebody that's struggling, you know, our Lord struggled. I'm, I've struggled, but, but he's been so gracious and good. And so are we looking for opportunities? And let me rephrase that. Instead of looking for opportunities, if, if it is just who we are, like, like I love the state of Tennessee, and when I travel, there is no denying where I'm from, not because of my accent necessarily, but because I'm proud of where I'm from. So guess what? It is going to come up in conversation about the state that I love. It is just going to. 
Every single time. Where are you from? Well, I'm, I'm from Cornersville, Tennessee. I, I li- now live in Knoxville, Tennessee. Let me tell you about how much I love the state. Every time. Unapologetically. It doesn't bother me. I don't care if the person next to me is from California. I don't care if they're from a blue state, a red state, a purple state. I am proud to tell them about the state I get to call home. I'm proud to tell them about my Tennessee Vols. But sometimes, well, if they ask me what I do, if I tell them, that might open that might open a conversation I don't want to have. If I tell them I work at a pregnancy center, what if they are, are pro-abortion and then that's going to go a different direction? If I tell them I work in ministry, what if they have been harmed by the church? That's going to go in a different direction. If I tell them I've studied in seminary, oh my gosh, what, what's going to happen? And so we put our headphones in and we just ignore. And look, I'm not attacking you on this. This is me looking in the mirror. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. The times that I have been open and the times that I have said, yeah, I do serve. I do serve in ministry. I do serve at a pregnancy center. God is good. I'm not saying that everyone I've ever talked to is, has found the Lord and, and wanted me to baptize them. No. But I walk away going, I, I, I was honest in that moment, bold in that moment. I wasn't rude. I wasn't hateful. Our culture is broken. And the answer to a broken culture is not more brokenness. The answer to a broken culture is not abortion. The answer to a broken culture is not turn away from God. The answer to a broken culture is not close up churches. The answer to a broken culture is not, you know, I'm just going to stay in bed this, this Sunday morning. No, it's not. The answer to a broken culture is the God of the universe sending his son to live a perfect life, down a cross for me and for you, and then three days later, rising from the dead, which is what we're going to be celebrating in just a few weeks. That's the answer to a broken culture. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Celebrate what God has for us. We'll talk to you next week. Amen.